2: Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at q for hillsdalecom or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. And glory in America, Baltimore High, Canada. Everybody is back in school. You know summer's over when the senators have to go back to work. If you're hanging around national airport today or Reagan, you're going to see or, or Dulles, you're going to see senators coming back. So you know that actually the fall is over. We are without Dwayne today. He's stuck at Burning Man. Uh, As many of you know, Burning Man turned into a giant quicksand, a giant mud bath, a complete and utter disaster. And Dwayne always goes to Burning Man because he's woke. And I don't know when we're going to get him back. It's a, If you're watching on the Salem News Channel, the pictures of the uh, Burning Man caravan from nowhere to nowhere is truly remarkable. Um, they had, you know, a year's worth of rain overnight just as they got there. And to my way of thinking, if you can't check a weather forecast before you go to Burning Man, you kind of deserve this. And it's not Woodstock. They didn't have that good of a music. So when Dwayne gets back, we'll ask him about it. But but the Wall Street Journal reports this morning: technology entrepreneurs, artists, and other free spirits like Dwayne, who flock to this desert playa land for the annual Burning Man, this desert playa for the annual Burning Man festival, are accompanying, are are com- accustomed to weathering withering heat and dust storms. This year, they wound up wallowing in the muck. A desert storm turned the dry lake bed into a thick, slimy clay over the weekend, transforming the Burning Man site 90 miles north of Reno, Nevada, into a quagmire, and forcing the closure of roads in and out of the event. Attendees spent the weekend covered in mud, which caked their boots and made traversing the temporary city difficult. The rain flooded tents, causing some participants to rush to find new accommodations or to quit the festival entirely if they could manage to find a way out. Now, I have no idea where Dwayne is. We'll find out. He'll wander in eventually. But if you go there, that's on you. But watch for senators. First Lady Biden has COVID. Pray for a quick recovery. Mild symptoms. Wall Street Journal, because there is no news. Labor Day weekend is officially a no-news weekend, along with the 4th of July and Memorial Day. Nothing happens. If we are ever Pearl Harbor again, it's going to happen on Memorial Day or it doesn't rule out terrorist attacks they're not dumb enough to do this. Um, they, they might be dumb enough to actually attack us on Memorial Day, Labor Day, or July 4th, because no one is in the office. But the Wall Street Journal, realizing they would have a giant news hole this morning, did post their Wall Street Journal poll. And what a surprise. This is a shocker. Voters overwhelmingly, uh, underscore that word, overwhelmingly, Voters overwhelmingly think President Biden is too old to run for re-election and give him low marks for his handling of the economy and other issues important to their vote. And I got a chance on Friday Night special report to talk about this because we did um, the candidate casino. And so I, the first candidate casino was who's going to win the nomination, cut number 11.
0: Uh, Two different versions tonight. You have $100, first of all, to bet, as we have been on the GOP primary. Um, You know, you got $100. You got to put them on the table. Uh, Hugh, where are you?
2: I'm staying right where I was last week, Brett, with $40 on President Trump being renominated, $40 on Governor DeSantis getting the nomination, 10 on Nikki Haley and 10 on the field. I think Governor DeSantis solidified my uh, concern that President Trump is not out campaigning as much as he needs to be and those poll numbers false positive for him. Okay. Second bet, whether or not President Biden will be the ticket. Cut number 12.
0: Another bet, $100 in chips, that President Biden is the Democratic nominee. Hugh.
2: Only $10 on President Biden returning as a nominee. 90 against that. I think the obvious infirmity is becoming the non-Republican elephant in the room. And I don't think voters are going to turn their eyes away after a South Carolina. I just think he's obviously infirm. I don't believe that shuffle is going to work. Uh, I don't know that he has Parkinson's like a lot of people speculate. I just think he's old. And some people old uh, age very well. And at 90 years old, they could be they could be a senator. You don't want a 90 year old president, period. And you don't want an 80 year old president. We did get to do winners and losers on Friday. And I was, uh, of, of course, prescient as always. Cut number 13. Winners and losers. Winner and loser. Hugh. Winner are SMU and Stanford and Cal who have joined the ACC, getting in the door in the great shakeup of realignment. The losers are, of course, the Cougar out in Washington State, Butch T. Cougar and Benny the Beaver at Oregon State, wandering around in the woods of the Pacific Northwest. It's very sad for those two schools. All that's left of the Pac-12. How many of you knew that that the Cougar of Washington State was named Butch. See, I do research for this. I actually buckle down and do research. It's Butch T. Cougar and Benny the Beaver, and they are the orphans of the Pac-12. But if they're smart, they're going to do reverse merger. They're going to suck in the Mountain West, keep all the IP for the Pac-12, and become the new Pac-12, maybe the new Pac-14 or Pac-18. But I I just think, who knew? Butch T. Cougar was his name, or Benny the Beaver. What sad sack... They're not Brutus Buckeye. By the way, the Buckeyes won uh, handily over Indiana, and there is much wringing of hands. I am um, sore. I did 10 miles on uh, yesterday, and it's my Labor Day long run. And my Labor Day long run is designed so that I can listen to uh, the first Ohio State podcast, Buckeye Talk, The Pod. Doug Marie's left the former and went to the latter, but you still have Nathan Baird and Stephen Means and a new rookie, uh, Andrew, over at at Buckeye Talk. So after a game, and the Buckeyes did beat the Hoosiers on on Saturday, uh, they post their post game on Monday. So I had two long podcasts to listen to. So I decided I would trundle 10 miles. So I'm a little bit st- sore this morning, just a touch. Uh, But that was my long Labor Day run. And I was talking to people at a end of summer cocktail party last night, Digger Mark was there and two speeds, Tony and Brian, the banker. And they were, uh, they they passed me like eight times going back and forth to the market and to the, uh, the downtown. Cause I'm not moving very fast. Mind you, I'm not sprinting, but I am reliable. And they asked me how I was fast. Great. But we had a great time last night, but summer is definitely kaput kaputski. It's done. And don't let anyone else tell you that now. We also got a jobs report on Friday that we talked about on special report. And I think it's a very weak jobs report, which will lead me into the next segment. But cut number 10. This is my preview of the jobs report.
0: We talk about the different visions, the prisms in which we look at the economy. Hugh, how do you look at it?
2: I look at it in January 2020, Brett, versus today. The height of the Trump economy pre-COVID unemployment was at 3.5 percent. The number of unemployed in the country were 5.8 million. And the interest rate was 3%. You could buy a house if you were a first-time homebuyer. Now those numbers are up to 3.8% to 6.4 million unemployed, and of course, 7% mortgages. So I think when you go back to the Trump economy pre-COVID and compare it to the Biden economy after trillions of dollars of spending, Republicans are looking forward to running on that comparison. And I think it's going to be in a recession next year. Economists are split. Now, I, I think Joe Biden's a failed president, and he's an old president. So I'm looking forward to 2024. And the only one against whom it would be close is former President Trump because of his legal woes. And he can't campaign. He's not out campaigning. And that that really does cripple him. He does need to do rallies. He does need to do interviews. He does need to be on television. He's not doing any of that because of a pending trial, both in, in D.C. and in Georgia. I I do want to also point out the underlying economic weakness. There are three stories this morning that I want to raise for you and we'll discuss after the break. Investors raise question after Sequoia Capital's turbulent year. One of the most tumultuous 12 months in the 51-year history of Sequoia Capital has spun off its highly profitable Chinese arm, slashed the size of crypto investments, and lost key partners, including veteran Michael Moritz. Now, when you get VCs, venture funds like Sequoia, dumping uh, assets and shedding and people making withdrawals, then you realize that the big money is very worried. Then we have the story in the Wall Street Journal. Spotify's $1 billion podcast bet turns into a serial drama. Spotify is losing that whole billion. They, they, you know, they chased a bright, shiny object. First it was uh, podcast, then it was crypto. And then finally, China's biggest home builder reels as economy slows. Now, Country Garden managed to scrape together one more debt payment, but they're going to tumble down in three months. So the world economy is on the brink. Joe Biden is like 105 years old, and everybody is worried. But I'm not, because the senators are back. I mean, if you just hang around national, you're going to see them come in, because they got to go back to work on this Tuesday, September 5th. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Lots more coming up. Hopefully, Dwayne will get back from Burning Man sometime this week. See. Stay- Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. David M. Drucker is with the Dispatch, Chief Political Correspondent for the Dispatch.com. Good morning, David. I hope you had a great Labor Day weekend. Hey, Uh, Hugh. David, tell me something about um, no labels, will you? I had a couple of house guests this weekend, and both of them asked me, who would no labels nominate? And I said, I'd have no idea. Uh You? You know, first of all,
3: No, I don't. But, you know, it's interesting the way no labels came up in conversation. It's the same way it's come up in conversation uh, for me with people, which is. I'm going to vote one way or the other. like, I'm definitely going to vote, you know, this way or that way in this upcoming election. But God, is that really going to be our choices all over again? And what's this no labels thing? I hear they might nominate somebody who's just not them. And maybe they'd be good. And who are they going to be? And, and here's the thing about no labels. You know, I've, I've spoken to them a couple of times. Their theory of the case is that if we have a Biden-Trump rematch that's, that's baked in and that is going to happen, that there is going to be so much frustration and unhappiness with that. It's not only could they nominate a candidate that's different, that would intrigue, that it would scramble the entire electoral college map. That deep blue states and deep red states or very blue, very red that are, that, you know, could be, you know, maybe a little tight, not going to flip. All of a sudden, all of these contests are flippable in these, in these races. If you pick some sort of unity ticket. Now, look, my response to them is always, well, you think you like these candidates now because they're just different, right? It's all, <laughs> it's kind of like when your team's losing in football, you always think the backup quarterback's the answer. So there's a reason why he, he's the backup quarterback. Uh, occasionally, there's a surprise. We know who those are. But um, oftentimes, there's a reason why second string is second string. Yeah, there are no um, Brock so you bring Purdy's these, out there.
2: There are no Brock Purdy's among the, uh, uh, the would-be. I just want to know who they think it's going to be, because if you nominate Well, they don't gonna... think
3: anything right now, I guess is my point, is they're vetting a collection of candidates, and they have this idea that you'd have a Republican presidential nominee and a Democratic vice presidential nominee or vice versa. And they would be the kind of candidates that don't make anybody too angry. And a lot of people really like and just say, if my only other choice is Trump or Biden and only Trump or Biden, all of a sudden they put aside usual cultural and political differences that that split our country lately in election time and vote for this this different ticket. And that is their theory of the case. But we don't really know who can get that done. Yeah, David, if you play the party game,
2: just play the party game with me for a second. Because I was asked, okay, what would work? And I said, first of all, if it's a Democrat at the top, it doesn't work. Because uh, all that does is beat Joe Biden. That's why I'm in favor of no labels. Keep looking. If they put a Democrat at the top, Joe Biden is dead. And uh, that's the Republican, whether it's Trump or Nikki Haley or Ronda, they win. They walk in if there's a Democrat at the top. So they got to find. Now, there are a lot of Democrats you could put in the in the second spot. You could go get Admiral Stavridis, for example, who is uh, coming up later in the show and put him in the second spot. And he'd be a fine unity candidate. But they got to find someone, some Republican who's plausible. And I want to know if you agree with me. Uh, Larry Hogan is a fine man, and I like him a lot. He is not a plausible threat to Republicans. He just is not, because he's a moderate center, eh, not even center right. He's a centrist Democrat, uh, Republican, old school New England Republican, uh, mid-Atlantic Republican. Is there anybody out there who actually makes a lick of sense that might do it that's a Republican at the top of the ticket? Because I don't know anyone who would.
3: Look, I don't know any Republican with a future in the party that would do it, but I don't know any, any Democrat that wants a future in their party that would do it. But I would flip the question around, Hugh, and I would look at it this way. Right? I had a friend of mine who was a Democrat say, man, I've heard a couple of these names. I think that would be great because as much as I don't like Trump and I won't vote for him, I'd prefer not to have to vote for Biden. And this ticket with this Republican over here – those, you know, some of these names don't sound so bad. Larry Hogan is a name that comes up. And then I said to this Democrat, okay, but what are you and other Democrats going to do when you think about Supreme Court nominees? Are you really going to vote for a pro-life Republican? A Republican who, if this Republican were president and nominates judges, is not going to nominate the kind of judge that might overturn Dobbs, right? Or that might allow some more abortion rights restrictions on onto the books or not overturn them. You know what I'm getting at. I said, this is what a no labels ticket has to overcome. But the no, but just to be clear here, the no labels theory of the case is that whether it's an R at the top or a D at the top, it scrambles the electoral college map because their only other choice is Trump and Biden. I, look, I, I don't really buy their theory of the case as a matter of political analysis. But that is their theory of the case. I'm just looking for names. To me, it's not so much about the names. It's not so much about the names.
2: Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now, 800-702-5400.
3: Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be
2: available in all states. I think it is about the names, because unless you talk to me specifically about candidates, if you want to nominate Mitt Romney, who might willingly do it, uh, we can talk about Romney Stavridis or Romney Joe Lieberman or someone like that. But until they have names, it's a party game. If that's all it is, and it's not real. I don't believe in it. But David M. Drucker, if you write about it, I will read it at thedispatch.com. Sorry about our camera. Well, you know, Dwayne is at Burning Man in the Mud, so we don't know when that's going to work again. Stay tuned. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Good morning, Glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Byron York and I were together on Special Report on Friday night. We disagreed about whether Joe Biden will be the nominee of the Democrats. I don't believe he will be. Byron believes he will be. Good morning, Byron. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. Doing well. Now, since we were together with Brett on uh, Friday night, the Wall Street Journal put out a poll of 1,500 registered voters over the weekend because yep. there is no news. Uh 73% of registered mm-hmm. voters say Joe Biden is too old to be president. That is a stunning number, uh, Byron. Are you hanging on to your Joe Biden will be the nominee?
5: I
1: am, uh, and actually, you know, it, it, there was an interesting story yesterday or the day before from uh, Nate Silver, uh, who just looked at death rates for for men as they turn eighty, eighty one, eighty two, eighty three, eighty four, eighty five, eighty six, uh, and said, you know, this is a this is a significant problem with uh, 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 electing an eighty two year old man. Yes, it's a less significant problem uh electing a seventy eight year old man as Donald Trump would be. But it's a really significant problem with Joe Joe Biden. My position was it's incredibly hard to blast a president uh out of a campaign if you were his political party. Uh it political parties are very, very reluctant to uh um, to uh eject their own candidate, their own president just doesn't really happen.
2: It doesn't. And I always thought Ted Kennedy was going to be Jimmy Carter in 76 and and 80 and I should have learned my lesson. But the inability to walk, and I have been watching the president recently and he's not lifting his feet, Byron. He he can't get his feet up. He's shuffling. shuffling. And this is obvious to everyone. And so I just don't think he's going to make it. Play with me for a second. If, in fact, he wins in South Carolina and then exits stage right in a choreographed exit that is designed to allow someone other than not named Harris to be nominated, who is the Democrat most likely to walk in and win at that point the nomination?
1: Well, I think you have to look at the the governors who are out there actually um, – Loyally campaigning for him right now. So you have to look at, uh, Newsom, uh, Whitmer, Shapiro. There, there'll be some Cooper. There's some that I'm not going to uh, remember.
2: Polis in you, Colorado. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You look at these Democratic governors, uh, who have already been positioning themselves, uh, for this if in case it happens. You know, it, because going out and loyally campaigning as a Democrat now, campaigning for Joe Biden, is a good way to put yourself in position to succeed Joe Biden. You know, if if uh, the unexpected word happen that he he actually gets elected again and he serves his term, well, you're in you're in position for 2028. 20, but more likely, uh, you're in position for 2024. So I think it would have to be. I don't I don't think there's anybody. Uh, in the Senate, you know, from the 2020 field, um, Booker or Warren or Klobuchar was probably going to jump ahead of the governor's.
2: I agree. And I think that's Newsom just by virtue of the ability to raise money and name ID and win the California yeah, he's primary. Yeah, out there. Yeah. So now play the party game with me, because we had two sets of guests for dinner on Friday and Saturday night. We played the party game with both of them about no labels because they don't want to vote for Biden and they hate Trump, the people that came by. And I'm a loyal Republican. I'll support the nominee. But, but, but. If you're no labels and you have to come up with someone who could actually win, I think it's got to be a Republican at the top. Otherwise, it just helps us. I'm all in favor of no labels if they put a Democrat at the top. That helps the Republicans. But if it's a, a Republican at the, who do they possibly have not named Mitt Romney? Republican? Uh, yeah. What would no labels? Larry Hogan doesn't win. The name Larry we're Hogan
1: talking about was Governor Hogan, right?
2: Right. And um, he's, just, he's a wonderful man and a friend of the show, but he could not possibly win, and he would take he's votes not, away from he's really Biden. Have, he's not really going to have any effect. Agree. Uh, on the race, it seems Agree. to
1: me. And th- there just isn't one. I i, um, I remember um, in 2020, Trump didn't have a lot of campaigning he had to do, but uh, he went to the Iowa caucuses, even though there, was, there really was no Republican Iowa caucus. And, um, uh there um uh, Joe Walsh the former radio host um was there campaigning against Trump and so I go to an event of his and it's an event with Democrats and they kind of he he they all agree that they hate Trump but then they start going over issues and they don't agree with him at all I mean he's in favor of School choice, and he wants to cut federal spending, uh, and he wants to spend more on the military. I mean, he, he wants to do all of these Republican things, right, except he hates Trump. Uh, and it was a, this ridiculous meeting in which uh, they could all agree like uh, 10 minutes out of every hour when they were, when they were going on about Trump. This is uh, having a Republican running uh, as an anti-Trump candidate just doesn't work.
2: It doesn't work. It's just it's a party game. It's silly. And uh, I'm all for no labels because it inevitably will hurt Biden. It just will. Inevitably. Well, that's hurt why Biden.
1: Democrats are extremely angry about this no label stuff. I mean, they're, they're not saying, oh, gee, some no labels candidate is going to come out and win. They're worried you'll take a, a percentage point or two from Joe Biden. And that could be enough to make Biden
2: lose to Trump. Does Cornell West take enough away from Biden to make Biden lose?
1: You know, actually, Cornell West was, candidacy was taken more seriously than I, I would have done uh, at the the top. Uh, I, I think not. Uh, I, I just don't see Cornell West taking any significant uh, uh, number of voters from anybody.
2: All right. Now, my last you, question, please, and we'll we'll, we'll revisit this, Byron. But if they nominate eighty-two-year-old Joe Biden. Yeah. And he can barely make it up the steps of Air Force One, even mm-hmm. if they double, triple. They put a ramp on and they wheel him up. up He's going the
1: lower the lower entrance, yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's just say
2: they're stuck and they have to do it. Do you believe that Democrats will stay home? Because I think they will. I think that, that Democrats' no, yeah. down ticket are going to lose because Joe Biden is the nominee.
1: If, if Donald Trump is on the ballot, I do not believe that Democrats will stay home. Trump is an enormous motivator, uh, and people uh, say, "Boy, boy, how did we have so many votes? You know, 80 million votes." Well, because Trump is an incredible motivator motivator of voters. So, uh, no, they don't stay home uh, and they go vote.
2: So, in and if I translate this well, are you of the opinion that any other Republican not named Trump wins?
1: Uh. Yeah, I think I think then it becomes a generational uh, contest contest and people can just openly admit, you know, Joe Biden really is too old. Uh, Ron DeSantis is 40 something or some other candidate is 50 something or even 60 something. And it's really time to get someone younger in because we do have this weird <clears throat> gerontocracy in Washington and it's time to stop that.
2: And this is what I think is the water on the rock effect. I think Republicans are going to figure out that whatever they think about Donald Trump, and they may love him, he, he he's a guy who's going to reelect Biden, and he cannot campaign, and that they're going to go somewhere else. I really do think that's going to happen by now I'm often wrong and at least 50% of the time. So maybe he does get the nomination again, and maybe he wins. But I just think a lot of Republicans are going to figure it out. He cannot win. Uh, Do you think that is dawning on people that he cannot win?
1: Not yet. I I mean, in this last poll, this this Wall Street Journal poll, which shows Trump with, what was it, a 46-point lead over um, uh, DeSantis, uh, people started saying, you know, it's not a two-man race. anymore. It's over. Um, So I think Republican support for him right now is just growing. I don't see any planned event between now and the Iowa caucuses that really changes that. But that's when people actually start voting. And then next year, uh, I don't think uh, Republicans or Trump himself have really fully appreciated the degree to which next year is a long grind in which the prosecution machine grinds and grinds and grinds at Trump, takes his time, takes his attention takes his money, uh, and keeps the trials of Donald Trump in the news every single day. Now, will this just uh, harden Republican support even more, or will that grind
2: begin to wear him down? We'll see. Now, running for president in leg irons is not easy to do. And these are uh, metaphorical leg irons, but what you just described is a nightmare and he's not campaigning. And I don't think you can win the presidency unless you campaign. And it's very hard to campaign when you're in the dock. Uh, but we'll see. Byron York of the Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor. Thank you, Byron. Coming right back, America. Stay tuned to The Hugh Hewitt Show. Somewhere that music means America. The Admiral James Stavridis, retired United States Navy, former Allied Supreme Commander, joins me. Good morning, Admiral. How are you? Doing great, Hugh.
4: We uh, dodged a little hurricane bullet down here in Florida and we're ready to get back to
2: work. That's good. Now, Admiral, I want to begin by asking you, is there a mandatory retirement age in the American military?
4: Uh, It's a slightly more complicated question than you would guess, but no, there's no mandatory retirement age. What is required is uh, you can only stay for thirty years of service if you continue to progress in the rank, so for example, an officer can stay for thirty years uh, if he or she has made the rank of captain. Similar dates exist in the enlisted force, but there's no hey you're you're a certain age and you got to retire.
2: Is there any upper limit, for example, serving as chief of staff? or CNO, or something like that, where no one above the age of 68 ever ends up in that job?
4: Um, Realistically, it it wouldn't happen, simply because you come in at age 21, say, commissioned as an officer, you go, realistically, 40 years would be the long, I did 37. Mike Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, did 40 years. Um, That's the realistic limit.
2: OK, now, I do remember that there were waivers extended for the submarine guy uh, whose name is escaping me right now. Forever. Over. That's it. He stayed in until he was 80, right?
4: Uh, I think even longer. I, I think he served into his 80s. He became the longest serving Navy officer in history, longest serving flag officer in history. That was an exceptional case. Um, the Congress decided to keep extending that. It required effectively changing the law to do that.
2: Yeah. So now this brings me to no labels. Uh, Have you been approached by no labels, Admiral? I've had a couple of very casual conversations with them.
4: I don't know a great deal about the organization.
2: Yeah. My theory is that if they found a Republican who could win, they would come and ask you as a naval officer with maybe some Democratic history, to be the bottom of the ticket. So I would assume that you would do that. Would you have any interest in ever doing that? Would you rule it out? That's the best way to put it. Would you rule it out?
4: I would never rule out serving the country.
2: So given that, uh, that you wouldn't do that, do you think there are any Republican sitting officials that you know who, I mean, sitting officials who would serve at the top of that ticket?
4: At the top of the no-labels ticket, I'm unaware. Like you, I've read the press reports. I think uh, I've seen reports that John Huntsman uh, is kind of in that orbit, former governor. I've seen that on the Democratic side, Joe Manchin's name mentioned. uh, He's a sitting Democrat. But you see different names here and there. But uh, at the moment, as I say about uh, presidential tickets involving the name Stavridis, Stavridis is too long to fit on a bumper sticker.
2: Yeah, well, it would have to be stab. Now, I bring this up because I'm (laughs) writing a column for The Post this week about how would I suggest the candidates do debate prep? And my summer project was, and I'm sure you're familiar with all three of these. I read uh, uh, Gene Edward Smith's Eisenhower in War and Peace. I read E.B. Potter's Nimitz, and I reread Manchester's American Caesar. And I think if you read those three books and you're a candidate running for president, you're going to understand how the presidency works and how it interfaces with the military. Do you agree with me on that?
4: Uh, All three of those books are terrific. And the only one I would add to it is uh, also by Smith. And it's the book on FDR. If you added that fourth to the three you threw in there, because FDR is our longest serving president, arguably our best president in terms of, of challenges he faced and had to overcome both personally and in, in the Second World War, the Great Depression, you can have a debate about that. But certainly he's in the top three. I'd throw that book into the mix. Your other three would be perfect choices.
2: And the reason I like the other three is because FDR is a character and not the focus. So the relationship of the supreme commanders of theaters, in those cases, Eisenhower, Nimitz and Manchester is all mediated with their president. And you see the president off stage, who comes on stage occasionally, but their careers are not about political things, but the president does come in. And I think it would illustrate to some of the candidates, I have Vivek in mind in particular, and I talk to Vivek occasionally. I think he'd get a better grip on how the presidency actually works if he were to read those three books, because I don't know of any other situation as demanding as those general officers had to face as theater commanders. Do you? Uh,
4: No, I think that's uh, absolutely crystal clear. I mean, any theater commander has got um, in in particularly the the ones you're describing in those eras, um, hundreds of thousands to millions of troops in daily combat, life and death, huge geopolitical issues, logistics, let's not forget that. How do all those pieces and parts flow in? I was just rereading, one of my summer reads was to reread uh, Crusade in Europe, which was Eisenhower's memoir of his time uh, in World War II. It's a remarkable book, actually written by him, similar to Grant's memoirs of the Civil War and and his life. And, And Ike spent, more time managing logistics
2: and personalities than anything else. That is what came home to me, logistics and both of the, all these theater commanders, and I don't know much about Mountbatten, and you can tell me you're, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you if I need to read about Mountbatten. They spend their life making sure that the right stuff gets where it needs to be. And occasionally they do grand strategy and occasionally decide that the Ninth Army is going to go from Montgomery back to Bradley. There's a big command decision. But generally speaking, they're managers of vast operations that dwarf anything by comparison in the private sector. And that prepares them to be leaders. And then they deal with the president and they have to explain to the president what's going on. I just think it's can you think of three better books that prepare a president to or a presidential candidate to be commander in chief?
4: No, I think those would be three uh, uh a group that I could throw out there. But um, back to Montgomery, I, personally, I, I wouldn't do a deep dive on. Uh, this is Field Marshal, uh, British Montgomery, who was kind of Ike's, roughly his deputy during a great deal of the war, one of his commanders, certainly, um, and and went on to be the first deputy Supreme Allied Commander when Ike became the Allied. So the thing to know about Montgomery, back to logistics, is that he was incredibly cautious, and he never wanted to launch an attack unless he had a overwhelming command ratio. He, he liked to have 15 times the number of troops as opposed to a patent who would go ripping in there on in a balanced program. And, and so I'll close with this. Um, Hemingway named a martini after Montgomery. He called it the Montgomery Martini because the, it was so dry. It, it was 15 to 1 gin to just a tiny dash of vermouth. Um, a kind of a, a an ode to this extreme caution, but really, what underlie it was his his devotion to logistics
2: now now, let me ask you two questions: What about Mountbatten? Do I actually need to read a biography of Mountbatten because that's the fourth theater? No one ever pays attention to Burma, China, India, or still well, I know there are books about it, but is it really necessary to understanding the war? Um not in the
4: context you're describing, particularly because Mountbatten was was really driving uh the land war in that theater. And and compared to what was going on in Europe on the ground and in Russia, um it it although the numbers are very large, it didn't have the sweep and the scale that you see. And of course the the air and the um, invasion, the sea control, all that was controlled by Douglas MacArthur. So you covered that with uh, American Caesar, I think, quite well.
2: So then the question becomes, how valuable is it to know the ins and outs of Marshall and King? These are the the grand Mm strategists for the Navy and the Army. And how important is it to know that, to know the war?
4: Oh, I think vital. And uh Leahy, I, I'd put into that mix as well, Admiral Leahy, who was FDR's essentially his chief of staff through much of this. King was the commander of the Navy, if you will, Marshal, the commander of the army. The three of them together um, are not often studied, too little discussed, but very essential to the thesis you're developing about how the commander in chief goes about uh, his or in today's era, her uh, ability to manage that war. Because uh, again, a flip side of all this is FDR was not picking up the phone and calling Ike. Um, he was talking to Marshall. He was talking to Leahy. He was talking to King. Uh, similarly, he was not picking up the phone to call Nimitz or MacArthur in the Pacific. So to understand Washington, I think you need to dive into those three characters. I'll I'll give you a book, if you haven't read it already, on Ernest King, you know, who is famous curmudgeon. Um, it's called Master of Sea Power by Thomas Buell. And, and King was the biggest personality of all of them, if you will. Um, a huge ego. He invented his own uniform for the Navy, which was Battleship Gray, and everyone refused to wear it. Everyone wanted to stay in the blues and the whites that we always wear. So when he would go somewhere, people would dress up in this gray uniform he'd invented. And the minute he left, they'd take it off.
2: Now, I have a a thesis to trot out in our two minutes left, Admiral. The essence of Commander-in-Chief, the essence of it, is FDR deciding not to bring Marshall, who desperately wants to be the Supreme Commander of Overlord, but to leave him in Washington, D.C. And it hurts FDR to not do it. It hurts Marshall not to get it. Eisenhower, of course, is happy, but it's the best decision. I think it's sort of the essence of being commander in chief. What do you think?
4: You're absolutely right. And uh, Colin Powell, who's another figure in this conversation, certainly worth studying and and reading his um, autobiography, uh, My American Journey. Uh, which walks through his life as a national security advisor, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, secretary of state. It's a, it's a kind of different optic, but I'd, I'd certainly consider that in your conversation about uh, how to be a commander in chief. But Colin Powell said, being in charge means disappointing someone. And, ah. and, and that's a fundamental tenet of leadership. Um, you can't make everybody happy. Too many commanders, I think especially these days, tend to
2: push a bit too hard trying to make everybody happy. That's a very good word to close on. Admiral, I'm glad that the hurricane missed you. Talk to you again next week. Don't go anywhere, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Stay tuned. Good morning, glory, America. Bonjour. high, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. If you're watching Special Report on Friday night, my guest, Brett Baer through a new campaign casino question at the panel. And the question is, is Joe Biden going to be the nominee? Good morning, Brett. I know you came up with that question. I am curious. Did you know the Wall Street Journal poll was coming out when you put that question on Candidate Casino?
0: I did not. And, uh, you know, it, it just bubbled up as something that that people were talking about. And I figured to get um, the panelists to weigh in with their dollars on Canada Casino um, to see how, uh, how they stood. I think that poll is shocking, but it does track what we've seen in other polls about the president being too old, even among Democrats, in numbers north of 70%. Yeah,
2: this is the key paragraph. And this poll was done, by the way, by a Democratic pollster named Michael Bocian and an Italian, a Republican pollster, Tony Fabrizio. So it's pretty down the middle Although the candidates are only three years apart, Trump and Biden, 73% of voters said they feel President Biden is too old to seek a second term, compared with 47% of those who said the same of the 77-year-old former President Trump. Two-thirds of Democrats said Biden was too old to run again. uh, I think that's news, Brett. Do you?
0: Yes, 100%. And I think that, um, you know, what does it transpire to become? You know, obviously Democrats are fretting about it. You saw on the Sunday shows, a lot of pundits, um, on the Democratic side really worried, it seemed openly about specifically that poll and how the president does against former president Trump in a head to head matchup. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen, but you know, your bet of $90 that he's not going to be the nominee, I think is hedging more towards where people are who are in the know.
2: Yeah, I just i I cannot imagine people who know anything about being the commander in chief voting for President Biden. I can see a lot of people voting for a Democrat because they don't like Donald Trump, but energy in the executive is the number one thing that Hamilton wanted, and the president. God love him and pray for him. He's just old, Brett. There's I don't know that he could play a round of golf. Do you think he could play a round of golf? I don't know. I'm sure he can, but you know those images of the
0: president on the beach. Um, do nothing for, for the president's, you know, portraying vitality. And then you get to the speeches that are teleprompter speeches, most of them, uh, where he's not hitting the mark at all. And in fact, there's always something in one speech that we all say, wow, didn't know he was going to do that.
2: Now, I I try and compare fairly by silo. In the radio business, some people go on until they're 75, and even we had one host in L.A. who made it to 80, but he got it pulled off on 9-11 because he botched it up. I don't think there's a single anchor in television who is 80 years old. Andrea Mitchell might be getting close, but that's midday on MSNBC, and she's a pro. Are you aware of anyone at Fox who's on the air who's 80 years old, Brett?
0: Well, Britt Hume. um, Britt's 80?
2: I can't believe that! Wow, I know, we can't oh. either. But he yeah, is. I want to be that eighty.
0: <laughs> hey, he looks great for eighty, uh, but he's uh, he is, and he acknowledges. You know, he works a uh, hundred days a year and uh, has a big calendar in his office, and he has a big sharpie that he marks down hundred days. Uh, but he's obviously a voice in, and a mind that we want uh, in the mix. But he'll he'll say that he's you know changed in h- how he approaches things and how, you know, he thinks about things and he's, you know, one of the biggest critics of of the president uh in his, you know, current state.
2: Yeah, Britt can still play eight, uh eighteen and can probably still beat ninety percent of the people who are listening right now. So I, I want people don't take don't give him strokes. It's like Dick Hauser, my buddy, and don't give him <laughs> strokes. So so sure. Brett, as this gets closer and closer, how will it be covered? Because I don't know that the White House press other than Peter even raises the question often,
0: no, I think that these polls though are starting to produce more questions uh, about this and and then the visible you know reaction to some of those speeches i I don't know where it's going to go. I do know that there seem to be more and more Democrats that are kind of in the wings and um, and waiting to see how this transpires. Um, I think that. You know, the president's not campaigning. He's not doing a lot of interviews. We ask every week and have since he won South Carolina as a candidate. Um, But we haven't gotten an interview yet. And I think, uh, you know, he's just not doing those. Uh, And he's not doing a lot of rallies. He's not doing a lot of campaigning. So, you know, at some point, it's going to come to a head.
2: Uh, Brett, uh, off the top of your head, can you recall even one modestly combative interview with President Biden in which the questioner got to ask four or five or six follow-up questions on anything? Because I can't. I can't come up with one.
0: I don't think there is one. I don't. I, I really don't. I mean, early on, he had a town hall. Maybe there were a couple of challenging questions, but but then they kind of moved on. So I, I actually don't think there's been a, an interview that has probed and followed up on his actual answers.
2: You're right. Now, this takes me to...
0: Was, go ahead. The other thing is, is what company is going to have a 82-year-old CEO and choose to hire that person to be CEO. I, there is not a company that is... There's only,
2: there's only private investment firms like Carl Icahn and people like that who are running their own money and Warren Buffett, and even Warren Buffett isn't running his own money anymore. He hired a couple of vice presidents. It just doesn't happen. Nobody does. Right. The liability is too high. Now, Brett, in terms of of no labels, I asked Admiral Stavridis earlier today, if he'd talked to him and he admitted he talked to him a couple of times. But I'm trying to come up with a ticket that would actually be viable in my mind, just as a matter of conversation on the radio. I can't think of one. It would require a Republican in office, not Governor Hogan, who's a friend, not Senator Romney, who would then be former Senator Romney if he were to take that job, or he might be finishing out his term. I can't think of one Republican in office who would take that job. Can you?
0: Uh, in office? No. I mean, I I know I, because um, there's not a Republican that I think is going to back away from from um, and step in front of the party like that. I mean, a Mitt Romney potentially could, I suppose. Um, but, you know, he's, he's running for Senate in Utah again.
2: Yeah, I, I really do not think it's viable. And if you put a Democrat at the top, it just drains from Joe Biden. It's got to be a Republican Democrat. And I can't come up with a Republican. And Larry Hogan doesn't do it. So all the effort and time and money that's going into that is that misspent time, effort and money, in your opinion.
0: Well, you know, th- these guys say they're going to get it on every ballot, you know, and they've they're ticking down states where they're actually getting on balance. Um uh, Could there be a a mansion huntsman? Could there be a, I don't know if it's going to, I don't see how it's successful in the current environment. However, there will be a hunger for something else. If it is a Biden Trump uh, battle again, there will be. There is
2: only one Republican who comes to mind who might be willing to do it and who would be viable. And that would be governor Glenn Youngkin after if former president Trump got the nomination and if no labels was viable, you could see Glenn Youngkin teaming up with a Stavridis or somebody like that and being viable. But I don't think he's going to, I like your phrase. They have to put themselves in front of the party. That is, it's a killer of a career if you intend to have a career, right? As a Republican.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. And um, remember, there's also the down ballot uh, implications and what that means for you know, control of the Senate, control of the House, all of it is, you know, party centric. And um, you know, I, I think there there may be a possibility if it's Trump versus Biden again, but again, it's still a long shot. You gotta you gotta have run the gauntlet.
2: Have Have any Democrats said to you off the record that they're worried about the down ticket effects of President Biden? Because I know he got 80 million people to show up in 2020. But I don't know that uh, the fragile Joe Biden can get 80 million people to go to the polls, even
0: if it's Donald Trump. A lot of worry. A lot of worry. Privately, there's it's like a forlorn fire. Uh, And, you know, they are pinning a lot of hopes on the issue of abortion and some of those referendums in different states and swing states. Uh, But if you don't have a strong top of the ticket, it's really tough.
2: Yeah, I, I want people to mark it down on Friday. You brought it up for the first time I've seen anyone bring it up in Candidate Casino and then the journal poll came along. It is the issue for Democrats. Brett Bear, always a pleasure talking to you. Have a great week. Everyone's back to work inside the beltway, including yes. Brett Bear, who never went never took a vacation actually. So thank you, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go anywhere, America. I'm coming right back after the break. I gotta update you on uh on markets and things like that. And then at the bottom of the hour, I've got um Lots more coming up. I can't remember who I've got at the bottom. They are, but I got somebody at the bottom. Uh, oh, Senator Cotton. We're going to talk about commanders who are eighty years old. This is this is the only story today. Is this Wall Street Journal poll? And I hope you're aware of it. Seventy-three percent of Americans say President Biden is too old. I've never seen a number like that. Stay tuned I'm Hugh Doy. America, I would be extremely surprised if Tom Cotton has ever been to a Jimmy Buffett concert. Senator Cotton, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. It's Good to be on
5: with you. I cannot say that I ever have been to one, uh, but uh, yeah, America lost two, two great Americans over the weekend, Jimmy Buffett and Bill Richardson. Uh, so my thoughts and, and prayers go out to their families and loved ones.
2: Well, I agree uh, on, on both counts. Uh, I want to ask you, Senator, about President Biden. The big story of the day, I was talking about this with Brett Baer. Is the Wall Street Journal poll that shows 73 percent of registered voters, including 66 percent of registered Democrats, believe that President Biden is too old to seek a second term. First question. Have you sat down in a meeting with the president in the last year?
5: Uh, so, well, Hugh, before I get to your question, let me just say that 73 percent of American voters are correct. And, and I'm not sure what 27 percent might be thinking. Um, it won't surprise you to know that my invitation to the White House so far has been lost in the mail, but I have spoken to numerous senators, um, both Democrats and Republicans, who have been in meetings with uh, the president and who knew him when he was vice president or, or senator, and they say that he has definitely lost more than a step, as anyone who can see when he speaks in public, you know, often seems confused about where he is or what he's doing or he makes significant consequential mistakes like blurting out that uh, U.S. policy is regime change in Russia uh, as we try to help Ukraine take its territory, or four times in 13 months, um, seeming to reverse our policy towards Taiwan, only to have his staff walk it back in a matter of hours. So uh, that poll, uh, although has there's a lot of people talking, should not be surprising to anyone who can see with their own two eyes Joe Biden's decline over the years. He's just too old to be president, certainly to have a second term.
2: Now, I know that a lot of Democrats don't like to speak ill of their party's nominee, but you've got friends in the Senate, and I say friends loosely, I mean colleagues like Sherrod Brown and John Tester and Bob Casey Jr. and Joe Manchin, and there are others uh, who have to run for reelection in a year and a half. They have got to be worried that, you no, know, even if the former President Trump is the nominee, that Democrats are just not going to turn out to vote for a guy who is manifestly not equipped to be commander-in-chief. Have any of them confided that to you?
5: I'm sure they're all quite worried about it. I mean, you saw this in 2020 as well. Um, You know, the Democrats were expecting to win six, seven, eight Senate seats, and they did not uh, have anywhere near that gain because Democratic enthusiasm for Joe Biden is low, and Republican enthusiasm for President Trump at the time was very high as well. So I'm sure many Democrats are worried not just about losing the White House, but also about losing control the Senate or losing an even bigger margin in the House of Representatives. I mean that's one reason why they continue to concoct more and more far fetched schemes to try to beat uh the former president if he is our nominee. You know they were worried they were worried that the polling earlier this year showed that he was running even or slightly ahead of Donald Trump. So they rolled out four indictments. Now the indictments don't seem to have made much of a difference, and Donald Trump is still running even with Joe Biden. So what do they do now? Now they're concocting this crazy scheme that somehow the 14th Amendment disqualifies Donald Trump from even being on the ballot. And what's worse, they are proposing that you put that decision in the hands of partisan Democrats like the Secretary of State in a state like Michigan to unilaterally remove the leading candidate of the opposition party from the ballot. Um, You know, for the people who claim that they are always on the lookout for our democracy, uh, almost nothing could be more undemocratic.
2: You know, I, I find that so absurd because the 14th Amendment, any even minor originalists, not like capital O originalists, but anyone who pays attention knows that that was intended to disqualify former Confederates from running for office in the Union after the union was restored. It's got nothing to do with today. And I know they found two conservative scholars who wanted to make a name for themselves. And so they wrote it up. And I know that my friend, Mike Ludig agreed with Lawrence tribe that it works. No, it doesn't. It's absurd. And I'm not going to spend any time on that argument. I do want to ask you about Merrick Garland. You're on judiciary. I don't know what happened to Robert Herr, the special counsel investigating the documents that president Biden had all over the place. And I do not know what is going on with Jack Smith. But Merrick Garland can provide us some answers. Has he got a date before the Judiciary Committee?
5: Well, certainly not in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Hugh, because Dick Durbin uh, controls the schedule, and Dick Durbin would do nothing to undermine Joe Biden or to diminish the protection that Senate Democrats and the media um, have uh, undertaken for the president and his son, and his extended family members and the way they were obviously trading influence on the president's office. We now know for 50 years, not just up to the time he was vice president, but why he was vice president and probably while he's president still. So, no, of course, Merrick Garland is not going to be appearing anytime soon in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, I can't speak to the House Judiciary Committee. I hope he will. And I hope you'll see a contrast between the kid gloves treatment with Hunter Biden trying to sneak a sweetheart plea deal Uh, By a judge in Delaware that failed because they couldn't defend its own terms in the light of day versus absolute radio silence on the investigation into Joe Biden's and his very similar conduct to Donald Trump conduct that's already resulted in indictment for the former president, but nothing at all for the current president.
2: Does the appropriations process require the attorney general to show up and defend the department? You know, it used to be that during the appropriations process, every head of every major department had to show up in front of the appropriations committee to defend their appropriations. Does that still hold? It,
5: it does, Hugh. It's not, and I'm not on the appropriations committee, so their schedule's not front of mind for me. But typically, those hearings happen in the spring, in March, April, and May. So I, I suspect he's already appeared in front of the appropriations committee. For that purpose. But I, I hope he appears soon in front of one of the, the House committees and answers for these questions.
2: Now, Congressman Roy has been adamant that the uh, he's not afraid of a shutdown. Neither am I, provided that there's a goal that is defined and attainable when the government shuts down. When you have an amorphous shutdown, Republicans always lose. If you want something and you get it, you win. If you want something and you don't get it, it goes on a long time, you still win. In this case, it might be a border wall. What is the general strategic approach among the Senate Republican caucus to the shutdown?
5: Well, Hugh, we're just back uh, today uh, in session, voting later today uh, after a month at home. So I'll look forward to hear what my colleagues have heard from all of their voters back home. Um, One thing I've consistently heard it's concerned not just about the economy, but about immigration, specifically the border, as you suggest. Now, as as Speaker McCarthy and Senator McConnell have both indicated, we do expect a short-term stopgap funding measure. We're only, you know, what is it, 25 days away and many fewer legislative days than that from the end of government funding this year. Um, we would like, uh, we probably need a little bit more time, but I think something like uh, increased funding for border security um, and address towards the needs of closing the border, not towards just expediting the crossing of illegal migrants in this country is something that could unify a lot of Republicans. And and frankly, you might see support from some Democrats as well if you see the growing concern among Democratic mayors and governors about having a tiny, tiny fraction of these migrants bust to their states and their cities.
2: You know, the arrest numbers went through the roof and a lot of people said, see, they're doing important," But it's arrest and release, isn't it? We're not holding these people.
5: Yeah, of course. This is all catch and release. And remember, Q, this is just the people that, that didn't run away from the border patrol. They ran to the border patrol because they know if they utter a few magic words about supposed persecution, which is really not happening in Latin America, that they'll get it to enter the border. It doesn't even account for all the people who actually did run away from the border patrol, those who were trafficking young girls or boys into the country, those who were smuggling fentanyl into the country. Um, it, it, is a, it is a disaster at our border. Uh, The numbers continue to go up, which belied the Biden administration's claims a few months ago that they had gotten the border under control. Nothing could be farther from the truth.
2: So if there was a short-term deal, you would suggest that they secure border fence funding in exchange for a short-term deal, not uh, only a long-term deal? You would suggest that would be a a minimum for the short term?
5: So, Hugh, I, I would want to examine the proposal very carefully because one thing we've seen with the Biden administration is that they will stretch to the point of breaking any statutory language that violates their preferred methods. Uh, So it's one thing to tell the Biden administration, here's some money to build on a wall. It's another thing to actually get the wall built. Um, So I would want to scrutinize any particular language carefully before committing to it. I'd also want to consider whether in the short term, there are things that can be more effective than trying to build a wall, which obviously will take a matter of months, you know, for instance, in, uh, implementing immediate changes to the policies for so-called humanitarian parole, which the administration has been abusing, or changing the policies uh, for asylum seekers, which they've been abusing. So it's something I think, again, the goal could rally Republicans and maybe even some Democrats whose states and cities have begun to buckle under the strain of just a fraction of the migrants crossing the country. But I'd want to examine the best ends to achieve that goal.
2: Last question, Senator, and I have been assured by Leader McConnell's staff, he's fine, he's back, he's at work, and uh, I have no reason to believe other than that. Is that your understanding if you talked to the leader?
5: Yeah, it is my understanding. We've been in communications with each other over the last week, um, and I just want to point out, too, the, the gross double standard you see in the liberal media's treatment of Senator McConnell, who's still recovering from a pretty serious fall and a concussion in the spring, And the New York Times, for instance, will go out and talk to lots of doctors who admittedly have done nothing to care for Senator McConnell or seen nothing beyond what we've all seen on television. And the New York Times will run that on its front page. By contrast, uh, they treat Joe Biden and and his obvious mental, cognitive, physical decline like a phalanx of bodyguards. And if you even suggest, you even suggest that someone watching on television could diagnose it, even if they're a medical specialist, the New York Times and The Washington Post and CNN will come down on you like a ton of bricks. So I, I've noticed that these arms, these armchair doctors only seem to want diagnoses uh, when the target is a Republican, not a Democrat.
2: Yeah, no, I, I got to say, 73 percent is a big number, Senator. If 73 percent say that Joe Biden is too old, that means he's too old. I, I, I think actually we could nominate anybody will beat Joe Biden at that number if they are capable of doing the job of commander in chief, because everyone has nine eleven in the back of their head. If nine eleven happens on Joe Biden's watch, I'm not sure he would know what to do.
5: Yeah. And, and Hugh, I think, you know, the Democrats are, are kind of locked into this Faustian bargain they made in 2020 of nominating a man who even then was obviously too old to be president and has declined since then and then chose as his vice president, Kamala Harris, who can only be seen, As a kind of 25th Amendment insurance that if you had just a normal, competent Democratic politician as vice president, I think the calls to the cabinet to remove Joe Biden as president would have already been very loud. But with Kamala Harris as vice president, probably the only Democratic politician less popular than Joe Biden. Joe Biden obtained and is still benefiting from 25th Amendment insurance.
2: Hey, quick question. On Friday night, Brett Bear did a new candidate casino. We had to bet $100 on whether or not Biden would be the president. I did 90 percent, $90 that he wouldn't be. How would you make that uh, the nominee, Senator? Would you bet 90 or would you be with Byron York and say he's going to be the nominee?
5: Hugh, I'm not going to be a gambling man on this one, but I'd say that I think you were smart to go long on that question.
2: All right, good, good, good. Glad Here at Senator Cotton. Always a pleasure to talk to you, especially when you're agreeing with me. I much prefer that. That's why we didn't talk about the Browns. Stay tuned, America.
0: To- Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets.
1: He was one of the most respected
0: generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding.
1: He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off
0: alarm bells.